When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. of Podcast Network. Welcome to Mother Folklore, Last Orders, podcast of words, Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland. I am Tara Crochet. This is actually going to be our last ever Mother Folklore interview. It's not our last episode will be coming soon, but the, um, uh, I just wanted, you know, before, before we are wrapped up, a topic that keeps coming up on Mother Folklore is the town and Irish mythology in general, but particularly how uh, these, this, this text resonates so deeply with people in a way maybe I'm not sure if Greek people uh, care deeply about um, Greek mythology, I'm sure they do um, I'm not, I'm, maybe I'm not sure if English people care deeply about Arthurian um, narratives, maybe they do, maybe they don't but certainly at Ireland we probably people do feel fairly close to their texts but also these texts have, such as the Dawn have been able to sustain multiple readings, multiple conflicting but or complementary or uh, different readings it's something I wanted to return to in the world that we're in. And I was very lucky that a wonderful guest has agreed to join us today. A master's student in Cork, um, studying um, Irish, older, early Irish, Irish. Early and medieval Irish, I think is what they call it. Early and medieval Irish, that'll do the trick. Faltica yeah. Motherfucker, Finn Longman. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Finn, what, what's, what kind of stuff are you doing in your research? Um, so I specialize in medieval Irish literature and I'm particularly interested in the Ulster cycle and I'm writing my thesis about the character of Lyke Macrian Gavra, who is Cuchulain's charioteer um, and a very neglected character, very interesting mm. character. But in the past I was looking more at Cuchulain himself and looking at the ways he's a kind of liminal or transgressive figure, particularly with relation to like gender and queer theory, but also looking a bit about monsters. Yeah. Love a monster, <laughs> and this is the thing because we, we you often see. I mean, when we, I guess when we when we we reach kind of a child friendly versions of the town, you know, kind of and uh, when Kukulin turns into a monster, he's kind of like a, a slightly Hulk like figure. Maybe he just gets a bit bigger. Maybe he turns red in the text, where his eye kind of dangles out and he has blood uh, blood um, hose coming out of his forehead, and it's fairly grotesque. Yeah, uh, his whole body kind of turns inside out. I actually think people always compare him to the Incredible Hulk, but if you're going to go for a comic book comparison, I would go for Venom. Uh, mm. The Reistrad reminds me of, he has a parasite. <laughs> the Reistrad <laughs> is when it wins. His whole body just becomes this kind of horrifyingly like inside out um, 
giant thing. It's very bizarre. And it's always de-weirded in the retellings. Yes. That's the thing. It's such a shame to actually to lose some of that weirdness, I think. And a recurring thing, something that's kept a topic that's kept on popping up, up for us in when we talked with the tiny there through the Irish four account to the multiple account or on the podcast is this idea that, oh, wouldn't this be a great Netflix series? But I would surely be de-weirded significantly in order to make that happen. Yeah, I think it's it's tricky to adapt to like modern visual sensibilities because a lot of the time I get the impression the authors aren't interested in the kind of visual plausibility. Like you read the descriptions and they contradict each other and they don't make sense, but it's it's more about the vibe than about mm. like physically being able to draw it. It's, yeah. it's about, well, this is the impression of this kind of inverted figure rather than the literal reality of it. So I think it would be quite hard to represent visually. I'd be really interested in seeing if someone could represent it through dance or some other kind of more abstract performance art um, because mm. I think it's a very sort of physical text more than it's a visual text. Very much so. And when we talk about what was there, like the, the physicality of the text, um, what would be a good example of that you know, compared to maybe some of the other um, medieval things, Sir Orfeo and stuff like that? Um, well, I just think there is so much focus on bodies because it's a text about combat and it's a text mm -hmm. where we have these constant single combat some of which are the very kind of slapstick with Cuchulain just throwing spears through people's heads or like people mm -hmm. getting impaled with pillar stones and so on but also there's this kind of um, intense physicality and grace to Cuchulain's own fighting style he has his like notorious salmon leap and for example mm -hmm. and it, it's very hard to visualize until you start thinking about kind of Olympic gymnasts and ballet dancers who can contort their bodies into these improbable shapes in the air and then suddenly you're like oh actually I kind of make sense of this whereas when you think of people as very sort of static figures on the ground with swords it's hard to represent that um, yeah. sort of speed and agility that there is there Oh very much so and that, that does make sense and when you think about I suppose I guess um, um, Eng English or kind of Welsh uh, text in a similar period you might find yes there probably isn't always that same emphasis on, on the body itself mm. Which is something I got. I had up. I had the pleasure of reading the Dream of the Rude in college. <laughs> you know that one. I am yeah, second hand. I've not done much with the old English stuff myself, but I, my, a lot of my friends have, especially friends from undergrad. So I kind of get all of their second hand observations. <laughs> You'd think a talking tree would be a lot of fun. <laughs> no, but so so getting to um, something that that connects with. Um, controversies and un un unnecessary controversies uh, in 2021 is that the tone actually did, as as a text it's frequently mentioned that this is that it it, it uh, responds well to uh, read uh, to gender focused readings uh, to queer readings and readings that uh, um, in, in that, that that the text represents that shows certain things, certain ideas that are dismissed as modern or faddish, or actually um, have deep historical roots, not just in uh, not just globally, but also but in Ireland as well. This is idea we 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 um we're kind of, we're bombarded by a discourse that you know we can't expect people over thirty two to understand something as complicated as being transgender or non-binary because these are brand new ideas, and they're not. Yeah, definitely we, not. And I think most medieval literature is queerer or has potential to be read as queerer than 
most people anticipate and most people expect. I think we have the Victorians to blame for that. A lot of their retellings, like sort of simplified and imposed Victorian gender ideals on characters, that means it's been kind of obscured to modern readers if they don't have access to the original texts. I think. Well, very much so. That, that, that idea that it's it's people find it so hard to believe that something as as, as central to I guess um essential to kind of the ways of understanding the idea of, of a, a group of people being greeted as ladies and gentlemen and the anti and single sex education things like that the idea that that's something like this might actually have been imposed and rather than just being the way things always are and it's very it doesn't take long to implement uh this is the way things always are kind of a narrative yeah i uh, i think also there's a a lot of things like People often think, oh, well, this binary is very Christian um, and therefore it must have like come in with Christianity. But even when you look at medieval Christianity, a lot of like the hagiography and the saints' lives, they don't fit neatly in our boxes. They're a lot more transgressive and interesting and queer than we might anticipate. So I really don't think we can lay that at Christianity's door either. Mm -hmm. It's much more modern than that. Yeah, I think... um I think some of the excesses of, of modern internet atheism have made people cry. Think maybe at least maybe these maybe the worst people in the world are wrong about everything else. You know, it's like it's just it just seems to be the fact that this common thread of these of these awful um, public commentators has been this idea that you know it, you can that you can blame religion but not blame all, you know the the capitalism that runs with it and all the other other institutions or the military and things like that that are kind of run with it it's been alarming so it's so I suppose we'll get down to actually how this reflects in the tone when why do people why do you think people say that the tone is um is a, a queer friendly text or a is a, a text that responds to a queer reading so i think it's interesting because this is quite a common discussion on the internet, but it is not a mainstream discussion in academia. Okay. It, is, it is not something that people have kind of universally accepted. There are one or two articles that explore queer reading. Sarah Sheehan wrote one in 2006 um, called Ferdia Deflowered, Homoerotics and Masculinity in Kovrach Ferdia. But other than that, there's been kind of very little acknowledgement of those queer potentials, whereas on the internet, a lot of people read this and they kind of immediately engage with that. And some of that is just academia being quite conservative in some manners. And some of it is like where Celtic studies has tended to historically happen has been in like quite Catholic environments quite often. So that mm -hmm. doesn't help. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where on the internet, everyone's like, oh yeah, I get this. And in academia, if you say that, it's a bit actually quite controversial sometimes um but i mean there are a few like starting points i think for where you can see those queer potentials in the time and i would emphasize that when i talk about queer readings i'm like not suggesting necessarily any intent on the part of the authors to mm. portray something that we as modern readers would understand as queerness uh, it's more that like there's something that we as modern readers can interpret um it's it's a layer of understanding and i think the value of a queer reading is it disrupts our assumptions um because if we stop assuming that everyone in a text is straight and cis we start looking at how gender roles are constructed in the text we start looking at where the interesting relationship dynamics are and where the power balance is and we actually end up with a more nuanced take even if none of the conclusions we come to are like this is homoerotic like even if we still assume everyone is straight at the end at least we've deconstructed it and we've examined what that means within 
the context of the text. So one of the values of, of a queer reading is it just makes everything more intentional and more kind of deliberate. Um, and the mm -hmm. other reason they're great is because they do allow people to see themselves in their own mythology. The number of people who've come to me and been like, it's so great that you like see Kuchelen as being someone who could be like me. I mm. really value that. That is one of the reasons I think it's worthwhile, even if that's like not an academic argument for it. But um, the two areas that people often look at are the relationship between Kuchelen and Ferdia. Um, and for those who aren't aware, Ferdia is Cuchelan's, like close friend from when he was younger. They trained together under the warrior woman Scothach, and now they come upon each other in single combat and um, fight to the death because it's not friendship unless there's a death match involved. Of course. Um, so this relationship between them is like one of the first things people interpret as queer. And the other thing is that Cuchelan himself is quite a problematically masculine figure. Um, which is funny because in artwork, he's always depicted as like this hypermasculine, muscle-strapped figure, which yeah. actually the text doesn't support at all. Literally everyone who meets him is like, why is this guy so small? Why mm. doesn't he have a beard? Which every trans guy I know has looked at that and been like, oh, I relate to that experience. <laughs> uh, so that is quite a good starting point for looking at transmasculine readings of Cuchelan and looking at ways he transgresses like gender expectations. Yeah, for sure, and, and so much, so much of it is about that. that is about transformation as well. Um, but the, the yes, that that's that is something, and, and I know there's a Antoine Bot is a wonderful feature, which which is it's the Burn or Burke version of the of the Tawn is, is um. I think it's uh, Joseph Dunn's. Joseph Dunn, sorry, that big one. Yes. 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 From like 1914s, and he has a interesting approach sometimes. But. Yes, definitely, and it's it's a very interesting text, and uh, being able to read it in bits in in small chunks uh, on, on a day to day basis and to roll back, it is interesting that there there is a, often this emphasis on how Kugon and Satanta is called the lad, and they're described as you know being quite beautiful, quite vain, and yes, and not using grass to actually make a fake beard to pass yeah. to to pass as a, as a man. Exactly. And um, so there's a really interesting comment from Medhav. And I should just put a note here. All of my pronunciations are very medieval, so <laughs> mm -hmm. they may not sound like the modern Irish ones. This is not just me being English. It is actually me being a medievalist. Anyway, okay. um, so I say Medhav and not Maeve. But yeah, so there's mm -hmm. an interesting comment from Medhav near the beginning where she says that Cuchelan is only the age of a marriageable girl or only the size of a marriageable girl. So mm -hmm. basically... It's it's a very disparaging comment she's saying, but but he's so tiny, he's not old enough for this. Like, why are we scared of him? But the fact that she specifically compares him to a girl and nothing else, it's like she's she's being dismissive, but it has kind of connotations that you're like, okay, why would she make that comparison? Why would she position him? And it kind of puts him on a level with Medhav's own daughter, who is used as a bargaining piece throughout. It makes these two young people seem more similar than we would have expected and then throughout people are constantly like saying Kuchelan is small um, and again you could dismiss that as just like people who don't like him being like well he's tiny although really they have no motivation to do so because it's more embarrassing for them to get beaten up by a tiny little kid yeah. like you would expect them to exaggerate his size if anything but then there's a there's a great moment where he describes himself as a milbeck 
a little creature. He's like, I am just a little creature. Uh, <laughs> I'm small. Yeah, he says, this little creature that you see, that is me, is wrathful. Um, and it's, meal is actually the same word that's used to describe like insects. It's, it's a very kind of derogatory word for a small, low creature. Um, okay. The fact that he uses it for himself. And he's such a proud person. You can't imagine himself like calling himself small if he wasn't actually small. So, yeah. And then the false beard thing, yeah. He, on multiple occasions, he has to adopt a fake beard. One time with blackberry juice, one time with grass and magic. And the fact that he uses magic is always interesting to me. Hmm. Um, it's kind of an illusion that he's creating there. And it's he doesn't seem bothered by it. Like, he, if he was bothered by it, he would wear a fake beard all the time. It's just that when other people question him, he's like, guess I got to conform to your norms now. <laughs> mm. So that's a that's a great point, and the idea that yes, it's uh that the disguise is a hassle. Yeah, and like he's seventeen, and in uh, old Irish law, um, the age of full adulthood was the age of beard encirclement, which was supposed to be twenty. So the fact that they're emphasising his lack of a beard, they're pointing out that he doesn't yet meet this legal category of adult. He is. He's too young. Um, but the fact that like his beardlessness is unexpected to them, I think is one of the things that makes it so intriguing because surely they know how old he is. And it's, hmm. I mean, there's lots of parallels. Like Achilles is often described as beardless, even when he's an adult. Uh, we see it in the sort of middle high German texts. I think some of them are beardless when they're like nearly 30. Um, and Lancelot in Lancelot du Lac, he's... Specifically, he's 17 in that as well, mm -hmm. and he's described as a beardless boy. So it is kind of part of this uh, broader range of heroic beauty, um, but it's unusual because Cuchelan kind of seems insecure about it, the way that other people kind of respond to it. He's like, okay, I guess I have to do something about this. He mm -hmm. could just prove them wrong. He could just beat them up without a beard. Yeah. But he feels the need to do what they require. It reminds me of like, when my friends kind of have to hyper-perform gender to get gender clinics to take them seriously, they're like, well, I guess mm. I have to wear makeup because otherwise they won't believe me. Mm. Um, but beauty is often a masculine thing in Irish texts, which I think is unexpected to, med to modern readers. Yeah. But Nisha and Freuch and Cuchelan, they're all described as beautiful. And there's a really interesting poem about the kings of the Illith and so on, which makes comparisons between medieval heroes and classical heroes and it says that Nisha is equivalent to Paris because their beauty caused the Trojan War and the Tyne. Oh. Uh, which blaming the Trojan War on Paris rather than on Helen is fascinating. That, that's what I'm thinking. That, that is yeah. fascinating. And then suggesting that it's Nisha's beauty that's the problem. That's why Deirdre ran away with him. That's what started the time. Like, again, that's a, that's a take. Um, mm. And it shows that we shouldn't think, oh, beauty, that's automatically feminine. Like, actually, their constructions of masculinity are not the same as ours, which is why it's so useful to, like, take away our assumptions and sort of strip back and be like, okay, look, how is gender being constructed and presented in this text because if we just assume it's the same as the modern one we're going to miss those kind of interesting points very much so and 
I mean, that, 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 that is, that's a, that's a, that's a really fascinating point. And I'll be thinking about that all day. I'll be mentioning that <laughs> in the conversations I end up in. And when we talk about it, and obviously the, the, the when, when people think about gender and the tone, the inevitably Queen Maeve or Medivh, as, as you pronounce it, um, comes up and the idea that she's that, that a, uh, such a formidable female character. And, and, and it's, it was often pointed out, I remember we had a teacher in school say that, you know, a lot of fairy tales traditionally end in a wedding, but a lot of Irish mythologies, they begin with a wedding and then things go wrong. And that, that may have just been how, like, Lady Gregory kind of um, um, anthologized them rather than actually a, a genuine trend in, in, a, in a narrative history. But it does start effectively with almost like a divorce, a couple deciding how, who owns how much what and how much of what and deciding on the split. Yeah, it's interesting though because that opening is only in one version of it. So we have multi we have three recensions, so that's like distinct versions of the okay. time. The first one is in um Levanahira and um Yellow Book of Lecan, among other manuscripts. Uh the second one is in the Book of Leinster, and then there's a version that we call recension 2b which is in a much later 15th century manuscript and then recension 3 is sort of 14th century and it's a bit fragmentary and so the pillow talk episode as they call it is only in the book of leinster or it's an innovation of the book of leinster i think it does show up later um so the first recension actually just kind of starts in media res they are invading also we don't know why they haven't Hmm. told us why there's a few different reasons that it could be because we have some other stories that provide a backstory. So there's one called um, Toimba Regavon, which like provides a motivation there. And in fact, that the Pillow Talk episode where they are splitting up their wealth and deciding who owns what is like never alluded to in the body of the Tyne itself. Like they never kind of hark back to it. They never say, yeah. oh yeah, but what about this? Um, and so it kind of is, it does seem like possibly the person who compiled the version that ends up in the Book of Leinster created that because it needed to have a more coherent start. And mm. that was the story they decided to tell. And it's interesting that the the Book of Leinster version, some people have said it's much more misogynistic than the first recension. It, preve- it presents Medov in a much more negative light in places and it has some more sort of disparaging comments about like, this is what happens when you, when you listen to women sort of thing. Ah. Um, so the fact that they make this a kind of marital dispute rather than, for example, if we take the Toynbee Regovna background, it's uh, otherworldly shenanigans going on, um, which is obviously like on a much more bigger mythological scale. And they've yeah. instead made it about like, oh, there's this disagreement. And the reason Medhav doesn't have a bull to match Alil's is because it was her bull originally and it went over to Alil's herds because it didn't want to be led by a woman. Um, yeah. So it's, it's all tying into those kind of the gender elements that are emphasized in the Book of Leinster version. Yeah, that's uh that's a, that's an interesting point about it. It, it only being one one part of the text, but it's uh it's certainly become very popular in the in the translated versions in the twenty first and twentieth century. Um like it's one of those things also where when you just read in the sort of mainstream translations like Kinsella's and Carson's, which are great translations, but it kind of obscures the fact that what we have is not a single text. We actually have multiple versions that sometimes contradict each other and sometimes do things a little bit differently and some of them have bits missing as well so you do have to look at more than one manuscript because sometimes there's some pages gone and if we just started in the middle of nowhere with no explanation we 
wouldn't know what was happening. So that's why the pillow yeah. talk episode gets put in always, because it does provide the sort of neatest explanation for what's going on. Yeah, it does. It creates a clarity, I suppose, and particularly it adds a, a poignancy or a significance to the two bulls fighting at the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's interesting in the time Bergefnan, um backstory that kind of Medhav's desire there was to see the two bulls fight. She was like, I will not be happy until I see these two bulls fighting kind of thing. So that was her her goal all along. Whereas in the time, it's like, oh, well, that seems like nobody won here because nobody got these animals. They're just dead. Um, but also, like, because so many of their body parts become parts of the landscape, some people have theorized it originally was a sort of a remnant of a creation story or a remnant of some kind of topographical myth because it ties into the Din Khanahas, the law of place names. Um, mm. Like, so much of the time is about place names. Like, this person died here, that's why it's called that. That person died there, that's why it's called that. This part is the the bull's shoulder, you know. Um, so it has these kind of huge implications for the Irish landscape. Yeah. Um, but for the characters themselves, it's a bit like, oh, this whole thing was a little bit pointless. <laughs> That's the thing. And, and I know some people have said that it's, a, it's an early anti-war text, but that might be a, a, imposing a modern imposing a modern position on, on, on it. I mean, I think it does seem to have a critical viewpoint of violence. Um, like, it very much seems to present violence as something that needs to be tempered yeah. by by prudence, by good judgment. it, And especially, I think, once we get to the point for Cuchelan's Lament for Ferdia, where so much of it is about how futile everything seems after this this desperate, um, violent death, um, it sort of starts to look more critical. And I, there are definitely some scholars who like look at this as a sort of clerical anti-war um, viewpoint, because obviously it is being written... In the version we have it, it's being written in monasteries. And... Um, I'll, mm. Crusades aside, like the Christian Church, generally like vaguely anti-war. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't think it's necessarily an anachronism to suggest there's some um, anti-war ideals coming through in places, and it certainly seems like not uncritical of this heroic topos of violence. You know. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. Let's talk a little more about Ferdinand and Kukulon and the fact that they were foster brothers, as I said. And, yeah. And are... Some people think, oh, it's jumping to conclusions to see a um, to see a romantic or sexual relationship there, but but is it? It's, I don't think it's jumping to conclusions. I don't think so. So there's a few there's a few things about Cuchulain and Ferdia's relationship um, mm. that are worth mentioning. So they're foster brothers because they were taught by Scothach, and there are several other opponents that Cuchulain comes across in the Tyne who were also trained by Scothach and who have this same relationship and I mean some of them like Ferbeth I think is one of the early ones he fights and he does try and talk him out of it and like appeals to their friendship and says you know we I don't want to do this but after he's killed Ferbeth he just kind of 
gets over it. And he doesn't seem affected by any of these other deaths in the way that he is affected by Ferdia's. Um, So I think this is a sign that there is something different about their relationship. um, And there's something different about the nature of that bond. Um, And people often take the manner of Ferdia's death as the starting point for a queer reading and as a starting point for looking at homoerotics because he is killed through the use of the Gabolga, which is like this exploding spear that is inserted through the anus and then eviscerates people from the inside, which is obviously like completely awful and horrifying on all levels. Um, But because it's like this phallic weapon and the way it is used, people then go, oh, maybe this is a bit gay. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's quite problematic as a starting point for the homoerotics. Like, it's mm-hmm. equating queerness with this act of desecrating violence and this yeah. like profound violation of the body, which I'm quite uncomfortable with. You know, suggesting that sexualized violence is equivalent to queerness is like that's a bit dodgy. Once you think about it, like yeah. I know people do start there, and it it is a starting point, but it I don't think it's the place we should stay. Well, I'm much more interested in looking at. Kuchelan's lament for Ferdia, which happens immediately afterwards for a few reasons, but mostly like it's the only time in the time that he has this kind of reaction, that he expresses this profound regret for what has happened. Um, it's, it's kind of the emotional climax of the text, but I also think it's the point where Kuchelan grows up. Um, he's a 17-year-old boy. He seems invincible. And this is the closest he comes to death, but it's also the first time he loses something that means something to him. And he yeah. says, all play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the Ford. In other words, like none of this mattered until now. And he suddenly is forced to face up to what mortality is and what death is. Like These, these matches, these death matches are not just, who's going to win this game? It's, oh my goodness, someone I cared about is dead forever. Um, and the profoundness with which he like struggles with that loss immediately after Ferdia's death he's just kind of immobilized by grief and he's arguing with his charioteer Loiga saying you know get up get up you can't stay here they're gonna send more people after you and he's like I can't like none of it means anything and Loig says you know like you're wounded Ferdia he would have killed you and for and Kukhelan says he could have cut off my arm my leg and still I would mourn Ferdia of the steeds who was part of me and breathes no more Hmm. And that's from Carson's translation, which is probably the most poetic, maybe not the most literal. But like the idea, he's like, he he could have cut off my arms and I would still hmm. be sorry that he's dead, which we've never seen him express about anyone else in the text. Everyone else is like, well, they got what was coming to them. Yeah. Um, and then we get the fact that he like focuses on Ferdia's beauty. On He's like, I miss your blush, your clear eye. He keeps focusing on his body in ways that are very reminiscent for how we see women talking about their lovers in other texts. It's how when we see like Deirdre and Leverchem discussing Nisha in Longer's Magnishland, they're like, oh yeah, he has, you know, this, his cheeks are red as blood with his blush and stuff. And now we're getting those same images evoked by yep. Kuchelan for Ferdia. And then that's even leaving aside all their evocations of their youthful training where they used to share a bed and they used to go into adventures together. And obviously bed sharing is not the same connotations in the medieval period as it is now but we can see they're very intimate friends which we just don't see with any of the other foster brothers so it's definitely an unusual relationship that they have there definitely it is an unusual relationship and that's it's definitely worth examining those points and we we had said earlier there was um 
well, regarding particularly with, with KuCon and Ferdia, there's um, whether or not I mean the the Tawn is an outlier among um, texts of this period. I know it, arguably it's not one period; it's multiple periods. Mm. But there was, um, but it is an outlier in terms of um, I guess yeah, emotional detail. Yeah, I mean it's partly it's just it's a longer text. Um, we don't have that many big, long Irish texts like this. Um, there's Agalinishinorach, but that is more of a compilatory text. So that has a frame tale of Oshin and Kilta talking to St. Patrick and telling him lots of stories. But it is lots of individual stories within the frame tale, whereas the Tyne is like one continuous tale. And we don't have very many others that are as long and as elaborate as this. Also, some people think that the Kovrachferdia episode is a later development in the story compared to some of the like earlier combats um partly because of the style it's written in the language is a bit later the descriptions are more elaborate um and it's closer to the fianagecht the the fin cycle material than to some of the other ulster cycle material because it's that much more kind of florid emotional detail which is moving towards the slightly more romance literature that we get in the later medieval period rather than the sort of very stripped back epic of the earlier medieval period. Um, so it definitely has a kind of opportunity for depth that a lot of the others don't have just by being so big and having so many different elements to it and also having those later elements. And it's noticeable also that the Corrigferia episode is more verse in it. So the time as a whole is prose, Um, which is complicated for the question of whether or not it counts as an epic because some people think that epics have to be a poem. Uh, But, well, it's prose and metrum, so it's prose and then it has verse bits scattered through it. But the Kovrachferdia episode has a lot more verse and it has verse dialogues, which are generally a later innovation compared to just weird, obscure prophecy poems that we get earlier in the story. Mm. So the fact that they have these conversations in verse, which in Carson's translation, he makes them rhyme and it sounds like they're having a rap battle, um, yeah. which is my one of my favourite things about Carson's translation is, is these old Irish rap battles that we've got going on. Um, so yeah, I think that is also like moving into that, that later romance literature, which has these more personal moments and these more emotional moments. Great stuff. So Leg is a, a great character who isn't maybe a household name the way I think for like like Ferdy has a, has a very popular name. Satanta is a popular name. Maeve's a popular name. A little less so. Yeah. And no, I, I mean when I drop my kids off to crash or school, even I mean I see the other names. I'm interested in names people picked. No one's calling their son's leg. No, well, no one's calling them Cullen either. I think it's a bit too famous. Cullen, there's a few Cullens. Yeah. And but I know there's a bit of vampire in there, but the, but also Satanta is actually reasonably popular. I think uh, my wife suggests that that calling her son Cullen will be like calling them Superman. And <laughs> I do know at least one trans person who has called themselves Cullen, oh, which please. I just think is bold. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went for Finn because I thought that was like more attainable level of heroism. Mm. <laughs> this is, and I, I've often said that um, that trans people who pick Irish names instead of people who are just born with them are the are the truest scales of all. Because <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people out there with that uh, with Fanula um, with the silent GH and so on, and who um, who think, oh, you know, what my, what have my parents done to me? But for someone to actually say, you know, this is the real me. And I'm taking this name and I'm putting sound letters out and I'm doing, and I'm doing this. That's absolutely hardcore. 
but um, I suppose yeah. Where, where, where was I spinning off of that one? Um, uh, yes, leg, um, leg uh, <laughs> yeah. calf. Yes, so calf, or um, figuratively in Old Irish, it can also mean favorite or darling or beloved, which mm-hmm. my group chat took about as well as can be expected. So his name, Loic Macarengavra, sometimes spelled Loic Macarengavra, mm. so you can kind of pronounce it however you want because the vowels always change. Um, he. His name, so Rian Gavra, it seems to come from two elements, Rian or Srian and Gavra. So Gavra comes from Gavor, which is a word for horse, particularly a white horse and mare. Um, and then Rian can mean path um, or Srian means bridle. So either path of a horse or bridle of a horse. So it's very much a charioteer's name. And we see a few mm-hmm. other charioteers with this patronymic. Um, and then the first element, either calf or favorite favorite charioteer is literally hmm. his name it's like it's like they went oh yeah chariot mcchariot face like, <laughs> they just they just want to emphasize that he's the, the top charioteer of the stories so that's literally chariot. what his name means <laughs> yeah <laughs> which which does amuse me i think and it does very much like emphasize that his entire identity revolves around his role as kuchelan's hmm. charioteer and yet he's very neglected because he shows up in like nearly every story. He often has a speaking role and sometimes actually has a much more major role than that. Like in Shergurgach on Cullen, he goes to the other world on Cullen's behalf and it is implied that he does this regularly. They're like, oh yeah, Sloig, who often walks the sheath. And I'm like, can we circle back to that? Like, okay, <laughs> he just goes to the other world for fun. Um, and he, he often has this very significant role in sort of restraining Cullen's more uh, dramatic flights of fury and acting as a mediator and acting as a messenger and yet when you look at the ac- academic commentaries on these texts he gets like mentioned in passing or in a footnote if you look mm. in the index there'll be like maybe half a dozen references at best in a full-length book about the time and like this bothers me um especially when people are always like oh yes Cullen goes there alone except for Loig. I'm like, I am once again asking when we will start counting Loig as a person. Like, mm-hmm. he has this whole character. He is the original sassy sidekick. His whole job is, like, insulting Kukulun. Um And yet nobody seems to think he's worth writing about, which is why I'm doing my thesis on him. There's the thing, and, and Lake, Lake has these great lines, just from, again from the, from the version, you see, like, oh, you know, like, Lake is there saying, that that try that tryst with those women last night was a bad idea. You know, we yes. shouldn't have done that. And yes. oh, you know what? And and as for this other thing, you know, I, I foretold to you that this would happen. It's like you know, I told you so. Yeah, he definitely. He's like, um, yeah, has this kind of curbing. He he he's the mum friend. He's the one who's just like, ugh, really? You're gonna do mm. this now? I have to go get you out of trouble. Like he's both <laughs> the designated driver and the mum friend. And um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the mum friend. And, but the um, yeah, so Leg is is that is that kind of friend character. But at the same time, there's a little bit more, and that that and that the actual the, the significance of the relationship there's might be there's more possibly more going on than just chariot riding. Yeah, so. It's an interesting one because uh, a lot of what we see of their relationship, it doesn't really come from the time directly. I mean, it does in that, like, Loic is his only companion throughout most of it. He's alone defending Ireland for, like, four months, five months. Um, and Loic is the only person with him for a lot of that time. So we know that they play Fifth Curl together, which is, like, a board game precursor of chess. Yeah. Um, and we know that Loic can beat him. Uh, about 50% of the time, which considering that Cuchelan's otherworldly father invented the board game, 
shows that they play together a lot and that Loig really understands how Cahillan's mind works because mm-hmm. he can beat him at strategy j- games. And that also shows that they're kind of intellectual equals, that they can do that. Um, but then we look at other texts, and I think particularly when we look at the early modern developments of the text, which is something I've been looking at recently, like after the medieval period, we start to get more emphasis on Loig, which means we get some really interesting portrayals of him. Um, and some of this is a class thing, I think. There's more interest in these lower class characters. Um, so in the early modern version of the death of Cuchulain, um Loig doesn't die. He, he oh. dies in the medieval version right before Cuchulain does. But in the early modern one, he just gets wounded and Cuchulain, like sends him away from the battle, says, please take the news back to Ever of my death. Like, I don't want you to get hurt. And they have this really emotional conversation where he's like, you know, since the day we bound ourselves together, we have never once parted day or night. Um, and he's like, like, no one's ever had a charioteer like you, nor will they ever again. Um, so it's this really kind of emotional friendship that they have there. And also the, you know, I like to joke that it's also very homoerotic where they're mm. not parting day or night. And um, later ever references how they all, the three of them lived together. It was peaceful, our company until now in one dwelling place. Um, so, you know, medieval OT3 going on there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there is this really close friendship there. And then when you start looking at these late developments, there's there's a version of Compert Concullen, which is the sort of birth of Cuchulain, um, that is found in a 15th century manuscript called uh, Royal Irish Academy MSD.4.2. Oh. It's, it's not important enough to have a Catchy name. Yeah. So that's actually, it's a 12th century text probably, but it's in a 15th century manuscript. And that has a whole addition at the end of the story where basically... Loig's parents nurse Cuchulain. Loig's mother is Cuchulain's wet nurse. And Loig is still young enough at that point to have been on the breast when Cuchulain is born. So they are similar age and they grow up together from infancy as foster brothers. Um, And we don't see that tradition in a lot of places, but we do see it in the early modern death of Cuchulain where he addresses him as his covalter, his foster brother. Um, So again, we have this kind of fosterage intimacy coming back and it's like okay so like how do we interpret the broader spectrum of Loig within that context yeah that's the the idea that that fostering is kind of linked to this kind of this intimacy and Mm. and between the between the Ferdia situation and the leg situation it's um it's interesting that and that and that I suppose the and the way the the recruitment process for the Red Branch Knights seems to have um have similar elements too yeah, and there are other parallels between Ferdia and Loig as well in the early modern material because we don't have many references to Ferdia outside the Tyne. It's a little bit like, oh, he's his best friend. Why have we never heard of him before? Um, he does show up in passing in Tochach Ever, the, the wooing of Ever. Um, but then most of the other texts he's referenced in are early modern ones. Um, but in the Stowe version of the Tyne, which is the 15th century manuscript of Recension II, um, not only does this kind of heighten the relationship between them, there's a there's a line in the poem um, that Ferdia speaks when he first finds out he has to fight Cuchulain. And he says, Alas, O oh God, that a woman should come between me and him, because the faultless hound is half my heart and I am half of his. Oh. Which 
I have it on my wall. It makes me cry. Um, mm. But the, um, later in that same poem, he says the same grave to me as to him, like bury us together, which is interesting in the context of uh, another early modern text, Torgert Gröger Grienhalus, The Pursuit of Gröger Grienhalus, in which Loig also says that he wants to be buried with Cuchulain, which, where have we seen this before? Yeah. Eva says it at the end of the death of Cuchulain in the early modern version, and like she's his wife, so it makes sense for her to say it, but the fact that both Ferdia and Loik also want to be buried with Cuchulain, this is getting to be quite a crowded grave. Very much uh, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, that, that's an alarming thought, and <laughs> God, yeah, so it's, so, I mean, before we wrap up, I mean, this was what, what version of, of the tone do you like most? What would you be recommending? Or is that a terrible question to ask? It's a terrible question because I think there are... It, it depends what you want out of the text. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, like if you're just coming at it like, I've never read this story, I'd like to read it, then either Kinsella or Carson's translation is like, that's fine, that's going to be enough. Um, obviously, I'm always playing around with the different recensions and like looking at what different authors have prioritised in their tellings. So Cecile Arachli, um edited and translated them in the in the 60s and 70s, and her versions are actually online on the on the Celt website. Um, but they're they're interesting for sort of exploring. The Stowe version hasn't had a translation into English, like that mm. poem. Um, hasn't been translated fully into English. It's been translated into German. Um, obviously, by the time you get to 15th century Irish, if you've got modern Irish, uh, it's it's okay to sort of muddle through. It's yeah. the medieval stuff that's hard, uh, which is the same also with Adas Conchallan or E Conchallan, because that's in early modern Irish and some of the manuscripts are like 18th century, 19th century. People who have modern Irish can more or less read it. You just yeah. have to like take some of the letters out and then it looks... Like, yeah, it's... it's I guess exactly. It's, it's it's almost like a Dunedin entry rather than kind of actual proper old old, old Irish. Yeah. yeah. Whereas um, for me, as someone whose modern Irish is still at Duolingo level, um, <laughs> I sit there with a dictionary and cry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in terms of versions of the time, like I wouldn't. The the only exception I say that the Stowe version hasn't been translated. Actually, Joseph Dunn's translation, which is the one that Antoine but recounts, does include bits of Stowe. He sort of mixes all of the manuscripts together. And it's one of the reasons his version of the fight with Ferdia is very, very long because the Stowe version has all of these additions to it and this whole poem. And then mm. there's some supernatural helpers who don't show up anywhere else, which means whenever the Antine book gets to that point, it takes about three weeks for it to tweet the whole thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, completely. If it, if it did Book of Leinster or something, it would be way quicker. <laughs> <laughs> if it did Recension 1, it would be even quicker still, because that mm. in that one, the fight only lasts a day. God, um, mm. so. oh, was not that defeated the purpose of tweeting it slowly out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it, yeah. Is, it is very much um, all about w- what you're looking for in a text, I guess. Good stuff. Well, I think yeah, you can't you can't go wrong with the Kinsler version and the Carson version if you can get your hands on it. It's a very attractive and accessible one too. Yeah. Then we love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. Um, what are we cutting on the hop there? Um, yeah. So mine is <laughs> unexpectedly it's Felicon, butterfly. Oh, excellent. Um, I 
so I I grew up in England um, in a family that didn't really know anything about Irish, didn't care about Irish. And I got into it via children's novels. And when I was about 12, I was online and I found this website that promised to teach me Irish through flashcards. It was like a very early precursor of Duolingo. Mm. Um, and I didn't get very far. I learned how to say hello. And then I learned some animals and, you know, Madra and Bo and Felchon. Mm. And for some reason, the word Felchon, it was so different from the English word. And it was so interesting as a word to me it was sort of the first time it clicked the irish was a real language that real people spoke not just in fantasy novels but like in real everyday life there were people who spoke irish and for me as someone like who had had no exposure to it i was like oh wow like this is this is a whole thing that i didn't know about and then i didn't really work on my irish for the next 10 years but that word i remembered it and that's always mm. going to be like kind of the one I attribute as being the first word of Irish I learned, even if mm. it wasn't technically. It's the one that stuck and it's the one that meant something. Well, there you have it. That's, that's the one that clicked. Yeah. Finn Longwell, thank you so much for joining us today. Where, where can people find your work? Um, so I am always rambling about medieval stuff on Twitter, at Finn Longman. I also have a blog, finlongman.com. And at the moment, I am working through Standish O'Grady's the coming of Cuchulain and analyzing his interesting choices that he makes. So that is the kind of thing I get up to on the internet. <laughs> but yeah, I'm basically just at Finn Longman everywhere that you could expect to find me. And I never shut up. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And please, uh, please never do. <laughs> Finn Longman, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. So until next time, this is Slan from me. Slan. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It'll be usually me swearing at the internet. So. <laughs> Good stuff. That's all.